Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. Good morning. It is. Tuesday, almost said Monday, but it's that uh, Tuesday that feels like a Monday for lots of folks. It is Tuesday, the 17th of January, 2023. Good morning or good day, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're listening and how you're listening. It is the Faith Radio Network, which means some of you are listening to actual like radio signals and others are listening online at MyFaithRadio.com and many others listening on the Faith Radio app. So, Hello to you, wherever you are and however you're listening. So grateful to God um, to be sharing this time together today and recognizing that um, it's a gift. This moment together is a gift. And so I receive you in this moment and the gift of who you are and um, all the other things that you could be choosing to do right now and probably many of you multitasking. So um, hello to each and every um, one of you and hello to you personally. Psalm 20 verses 4 and 5 are are our growing your faith verse of the day. And they read, may God grant your heart's desires and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy when we hear of your victory and raise a victory banner in the name of our God. May the Lord answer all your prayers. So I just want to pause here for just a moment and suggest to you that... um, this is not like uh, putting nickels, dimes, or quarters in a gumball machine and getting what we want from God. Um, because let's just say hypothetically, hypothetically, um, you were a fan of a particular football team that wears purple. And on Sunday, you had been asking that God would grant the de- desires of your hearts and that he would make a game plan succeed, and that we would today be shouting for joy with you, hearing of your victory, but instead it was a team wearing red, white, and blue. And their fans, whose prayers were answered when the desires of their hearts had been granted, and the plans that their coach made succeeded. You see how challenging this is, right? And not everybody gets to raise a quote-unquote victory banner. Unless the victory banner is, as the psalmist says, in the name of the Lord, in the name of our God. And so we need a reminder of last week's Growing Your Faith verse of the day on this same subject. And it was from Psalm 37, verses 4 to 6. And it started with, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will give you the desires of your heart. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn. That's the victory that's talked about in Psalm 20. Here it's called a righteous reward in Psalm 37. And so we must be mindful 
that God is and God is great and God is good and God has a will. God has plans. God has desires. And if the desires of my heart are aligned with the desires of God's heart, then guess what? When I pray, God's going to grant the desires of my heart. Same with you. God's got plans. And so if when you're playing, if when you're praying that God would make all your plans succeed, well, trust me when I tell you, if your plans are aligned with God's plans, God's going to make your plans succeed. And in verse 5 here, where it says, may we shout for joy when we hear of your victory, I want you to pause for a moment and ask yourself, did I, did I shout for joy for whoever won? Because their prayers were answered. Strange as it may seem, hard as it might be to bear, am I rejoicing today with those who rejoice, and am I grieving today with those who grieve? That implies there are those who are weeping. There are those who are grieving. If I'm instructed to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, what's implied there? There are those whose plans did not succeed, whose heart's desires were certainly not answered, who are grieving and weeping today. So you who rooted for those wearing red, white, and blue and not for those wearing purple, yeah, you need to be... um, Weeping today with those who are weeping, even as they need to be rejoicing with you as you rejoice. You see how this works? How we walk together by faith, according to God's will, trusting him. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. Nick Pitts is going to join us next. Hey, um, let me just go ahead and say, I don't have any classified documents because I don't have any classified, uh, I'm not like... You're not allowed to show me any. So I don't have any because I'm not allowed to see them. So there you go. Do you have classified status? And if so, have you squirreled away some documents you're not supposed to have? That's the conversation we're going to have with Nick Pitts. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Nick Pitts is back. He is our uh, friend from the Institute for Global Engagement. And he, I know, he's a proud, he's a proud Texan. So I don't know. Do you have a team that's still in? Uh, why, hello, Carmen. It is a Hi. mixed bag, to say, to say the least, here in <laughs> Dallas. Obviously, we just saw the, the, the Cowboys triumph over the, the, the reign of Brady appeared to be ending last night when they triumphed well, over the Buccaneers. But yeah, then again, yeah. I am Tennessee to the very core, and so my Titans did not make the playoffs. And so I am just a, a, a bitter observer of the playoffs this year, doing my best <laughs> to find joy in my team's absence. <laughs> All right. Do you have any um, secret classified documents squirreled away anywhere that you're not supposed to have? Well, Carmen, for the vast uh, majority of my adult life, I've spent time searching for documents with the PhD research. Um, and so I, I am keenly aware of documents that I do not have. And so I, I, am, I do not have any highly classified documents, but unfortunately, I mean, the same camp for our president and former president. Yeah. So apparently lots of folks who are allowed to see classified documents um, don't necessarily take super good 
um, care in terms of the chain of custody and those documents, I think in part, Nick, because there are so many. Let's just go ahead and say part of the challenge here is that the United States of America apparently every single year generates something like 100 million pages of classified, super classified, super secret, double secret, seal it up, classified, like the classification status is really extraordinary. And I think there's going to be lots of conversations about, all right, how many things need to be classified? Who who should be keeping them? What's the custody? Like, I do think that the fact that we are in an electronic age and we keep talking about sheets of paper are is probably also going to be a part of this larger conversation. But brief people in who sort of have missed what happened over the weekend because, well, they were doing other things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so what we found out is over a series of revelations over the past week or so, we uh, President Biden has been found to have had classified documents at his home in Delaware um, next to his Corvette, not to be confused with Prince's little red Corvette, but next to his Corvette in his garage as well as the Penn Biden Center in D.C. at the think tank that he set up after he left office as vice president for President Obama. And so we've had about three revelations so far, of various classified documents. And um, to their to their to their to the benefit, President Biden has come out forthrightly and said has acknowledged and alerted officials that he has these documents which makes it a little different than President Trump, who was who's kind of dragging his feet relative to the release and the kind of the return of those documents. But nevertheless, it's still wrong um, and it's still um, improper behavior, especially with regards to the protocol of, uh, ha- of possessing these classified documents. And like you said, there's there's millions of classified documents that are generated every year. Um, Klein Kitchen has a great write up of this over at the American Enterprise Institute. There, there's largely three different types of classified documents. They fall under three categories, and obviously there's subcategories to this. And so um, we need to understand, like one, this is significant, but also two, what we're seeing just at the very heart of this is is hypocritical behavior. Right. Uh, of saying to Scott Pelley in the 60 Minutes interview, President Biden uh, said that it's just highly irresponsible for the president um, to hold those, have those pres- classified documents, President Trump, um, in regards to those comments. And then in turn, he himself has that. But also, at the end of the day, Carmen, we know hypocritical behavior is a part of the human condition. It's not ideal, but it's not all bad. At the end of the day, what what I want to be able, what I want is hypocritical behavior because at the very heart of hypocritical behavior is a value that's been violated. Mm. If we just wanted to be consistent, we would just say, uh, "I have classified documents, but that's not bad." Well, what we have is hypocritical behavior that says having classified documents is bad, and I violated that with regards to my words. We've all made mistakes in the past, and so we want to. There's some gleaning of good with the hypocrisy, but at the end of the day, it's not wholly good because we we don't want hypocrisy because we want the values and actions consistent with the values. But when we have the contraction, when we have values that are um, that that are not adhered to, we don't want you to um, lower your values for the sake of consistent behavior. This um, goes beyond the scope of what you and I could probably talk about today, but I will say that one of the questions that was raised in my mind, okay, so there's these attorneys, these lawyers, um, and they're the ones who are going through these spaces and places seeking to discover 
um, classified documents that the current president of the United States is not aware are even in his possession. Um, and w- as soon as they lay eyes on those documents, they because they don't have classified clearance. Those attorneys don't. They're just regular lawyers. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, I'm like, oh, my goodness, the the levels of conflict um, that arise in these conversations is pretty extraordinary. So I'll just say this. If you have something that doesn't that doesn't rightfully supposed to be in your possession, today's a good day to give it back in order that you can sort of like win the currency to talk about this in the conversations of the day. So whatever it is, because I like to say squirreled away, whatever it is you got squirreled away that you're not supposed to have, today's a really good day to give it back. Uh, Nick Pitts and I will be right back, um, and we're going to talk about just how many people in the American population, yep, your neighbors, your friends, your kids, how many Americans are regularly using illegal, dangerous drugs? Why don't you put a percentage idea, percentage thought on that? You think it's like 2%, you think it's 10%, you think it's 20%. What percentage of the U.S. population do you think regularly uses illegal drugs? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Welcome to the First Church of Mercy, where the doors of love swing open wide, no matter who you are. We're talking with Nick Pitts. You can find him uh, at the Institute for Global Engagement, or you can find him on Twitter. He tweets at J. Nick Pitts. Um, All right, Nick, we have these numbers in from a national survey on drug use and health issued by the Department of Health and Human Services. The finding is that 14.3% of the U.S. population regularly uses illegal and dangerous drugs. Um, that surpasses our 1979 high watermark, reaching a new high um, or a new low, depending on um, how you want to understand this. Uh, Laura in in Connecticut texted in and she said, well, I'm a social worker. I bet it's at least 50 percent. Now, my guess is that Laura, that maybe maybe she's thinking there about people who have experimented with illegal drugs. What this what this is saying is 14.3 percent of the U.S. population regularly on a regular basis is using illegal dangerous drugs and you know that that number doesn't necessarily shock me i I did a little uh back research on this and so it's approximately about 30 million americans are regularly smoking cigarettes now um Mm. which is cigarettes used to be uh used to be pretty uh, common i mean even in cars there were ashtrays um but now there's kind of a stigma with smoking cigarettes now it's been harder and harder to smoke cigarettes in public at least but uh, but more people are uh, smoke marijuana or use marijuana uh, at about 48 million. And this 14.3 percent, um, if we just took the whole U.S. population um, instead of just the adult population, but the whole U.S. population is about 48 million. And so take that also into account that 
know, you think that uh, it's not illegal to use marijuana from a recreational standpoint in a handful of states. I think it's like 12 or 16, something along those lines. And so it, it's this number doesn't shock me, but obviously it does sadden me to say, to see so many people, one, breaking the law and two, trying to escape uh, from reality by being uh, failing to be alert and sober. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the value of sobriety. I think that that for Christians is that it would be the talking point in relationship to this. I mean, if for if if some 14 percent or 15 percent of Americans are regularly using illegal drugs, that doesn't account for um, this huge number of people who are regularly smoking marijuana or taking uh, taking it in other forms. Um, because that has been largely decriminalized across the United States. And so there's a lot of people who are high on legal substances. I guess maybe we include alcohol in that mix as well. Let's just talk about the value of sobriety. Let's just talk about, for Christians, the value of not doing any of these things. Yeah, I, it's, you know, the, the old phrase was 20 years ago that marijuana was a gateway drug, right? And that marijuana was going to be, uh, it was a, it was a portal in which you would just continue to entertain and then to also actively use various other drugs and substances. And I love the way that Wendell Berry puts it. Wendell Berry uh, often, he refers to uh, the, the presence of these drugs reveals the absence of your willingness to be able to deal with reality. You turn to these things when um, reality becomes insurmountable and too much to face. And so it can be seen as a kind of an escape lever, you could say, on reality. And that's for me, it's just an unfortunate, it's just a sad, sad, sad reality, uh, just because at the end of the day, I believe it to be true that this life is a gift, not to be avoided, but this life is a gift. It's like an orange. You want to squeeze all the goodness out of it. Um, and the fact that some individuals don't see that and, and are turning to drugs to be able to escape from it. It just it just saddens me because they have such a misguided worldview one and misguided practices too. Yeah, let's just be encouraging one another today to um, face reality with faith. Um, and I want to encourage you if you are struggling with addiction, if you are struggling with sobriety, um, I want to encourage you to to turn to a Christian today. Go talk to a pastor. Um, call up a Christian you know, text somebody who you know is a Christian and just say, I'm really struggling with this, um, and I want a different way of dealing with reality than using drugs. Um, trust me when I tell you, uh, any one of us would go to whatever links we could to help a friend, um, a neighbor, a colleague um, who who wanted to battle their way out of addiction. Um, we recognize it's a battle, um, but we recognize that it is a battle that can be won. It can be overcome. Um, and so and it invites you into um, into that today. Nick, um, you and I have read uh, this this substack piece by um, a licensed clinical social worker in California. Um, and it's about it's about how our culture has moved from an effort to destigmatize mental health issues, which is a good thing, to normalizing mental illness, which is not a good thing. Can you just maybe read us in on where we are as a culture in terms of normalizing mental illness when what we should be seeking to normalize is mental health? 
Yeah, it, it was. The, she has this great line in it, and and she wants to hold these two things in hand, right? Because we know that forever, uh, or not forever, for for the vast majority of American history, there's just been a stigma that's been associated with mental illness, and it's kept individuals from finding themselves from wanting to uh, to wanting to seek help. And so she's she wants to applaud, and, and I would echo her. She wants to applaud the links that we've gone to be able to destigmatize mental illness and to really help people have the freedom to find help. But what she has found is that people have moved from stig- destigmatization of mental illness to the celebration of it. Like it's it, like, it's a badge to be earned. It's an honor to be, uh, to be amplified. And she says the pendulum has swung to such an extent now that individuals that are battling with mental illness or have a mental illness are seen as boasting. And that's, that's just, that's not healthy. That's not right. That's not good. At the end of the day, you don't want to you don't want to uh, celebrate your mental illness. You want to find find um, uh, find healing uh, from it. Yeah, I think one of the things that this highlighted that was um, new to me um, are are these photographs of these young people basically modeling their self inflicted scars. The you know the cut from from self cutting, and I just I'm you know that's now like. I don't know, but it's very graphic, and apparently these um, uh, posters are featured around the world, um, these self-harm scar posters, and um, they're pride posters as well. And I just, you know, that's the things that we take pride in uh, maybe is another conversation that that we could have um, in the culture today. It, this is not something, it's not something to take pride in. Um, that you've harmed yourself, that you've harmed another person. It's not. It's not something to take pride in that you have a mental health disorder. We want people to be healthy mentally and physically. Yeah, literally. This when I saw the pride posters and the, and the people cut up. It, like vividly, I would go back to Matthew nine. Right, Matthew nine. He looks out. Jesus looks at the very end of Matthew nine. He looks out over the field, and he scattered. And he said that these are sh- uh, sheep without a shepherd. They're uh, scattered, and, and and they're and they're cut up. Literally in the Greek, it's the word filleted. It's in. It's these sheep that have no shepherd that are cut up and that are aimless and without, and they're just wandering. And what does Jesus do? He turns one and he prays with his disciples, and then he sends them out into the field. Because the field, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What we're seeing today on these posters are sheep that are cut up, that are in desperate need to know that a shepherd loves them, cares for them, and wants to guide them into the fullness of life. And may we continue to pray that the harvest is plentiful, but may the workers continue to grow in number so they might point to the great shepherd. That's so helpful. Nick, thank you so much as always for joining us today. And being in conversation with us, you can find Nick on Twitter, J. Nick Pitts. You can also find him at the Institute for Global Engagement. All the links for the stories we talked about today um, will be in the show notes, which you can get at MyFaithRadio.com or when you subscribe to Mornings with Carmen via your favorite podcast service. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Uh, Mary is on the uh, text line this morning um, saying, hey, good morning. I, I, I find it it's getting harder being a sober person living in the midst of so many who are trying to escape reality. Um, 
Amen, amen, and amen. Mary, I want to say this. You're not alone. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you, and I'm with you. And so is everybody else who's listening right now. Like, let's be people who are upholding one another in prayer and in fellowship and in conversation. We have a world increasingly seeking to go its own way, um, and we live in the midst of a people increasingly seeking to escape uh, escape reality through all kinds of means and measures. Um, And in the midst of that, we're going to be people who are sober and measured and not mean. Okay? That's who we're going to be in the midst of all of this. So thank you so much for um, joining me in this conversation this morning and prayerfully addressing um, the headline news of the day, seeking to cultivate the mind of Christ so that each one of us can walk our faith out into the world that God so loves and do so in ways that honor Jesus. That is my heart's desire each and every day that we get together. So there has been, um, uh, well, several, but one really horrific Russian strike over the weekend, um, considered one of the war's deadliest attacks, uh, in, and it's in Dnipro, Ukraine, an apartment building where more than a thousand people were living, including families with lots of children. Ukrainian emergency crews have been working for the past three days now to sift through what's left of the apartment building destroyed by a Russian missile. Um, the, the, the death toll is now 40, including several children, but there are 30 people who, um, were still missing as of, um, very early this morning. And, you know, you get to that 72 hour point and, um, and the likelihood of pulling survivors out, um, just diminishes greatly. It's very, very cold in Ukraine. It's the, it is now a uh, deep winter. So um, some of you have asked, hey, we haven't had an update on how many Ukrainians have come to the United States uh, through the Uniting for Ukraine program. Somebody asked, hey, did that family ever come to live with you? All right. So I have an update for you. So as of July, so that was, you know, February to July, the United States actually received more than 100,000 Ukrainians, um, but not all of them came through the Uniting for Ukraine process. And so I think that when you look at numbers related to this, you're going to see these just really, really dramatically desperate uh, numbers. So lots of Ukrainians have come to the United States since February 24th when Russia fully invaded that country. But they've come through a number of immigration channels. They have very different um, legal status. Most of them are here with temporary permission to stay in the country for two years. Um Uh, So lots of them have come on temporary or immigrant visas. Many, many have come under the private sponsorship program. Um, Many, many tens of thousands have come across the U.S.-Mexican border. They have a very different status than those who have come with sponsors. Um, And uh, and then like 500 uh, entered the country through the very traditional refugee system. So when you if you were just to Google how many Ukrainians entered the United States as refugees, and you use that very specific term, the number is going to be like, you're going to say, oh, it's dramatically low. It's less than a thousand people. Um, Well, but the number of Ukrainians who have come to the United States is closer to 200,000 in terms of those who have come through through many, many various uh, paths and programs, specifically through the Uniting for Ukraine program, which is what my family applied to be a sponsor. We were one uh, of nearly 200,000 applicants to be sponsors and more than 125,000 travel authorizations for Ukrainians um, have been issued. So more 
Americans applied to be sponsors than there were Ukrainians who qualified through the process to come. So the family that we sought to sponsor is here in the United States. They're just not with us. So um, so there you go, an update on that. We're going to talk with Luke Moon from the Philos Project and Providence Magazine about what's happening uh, in Ukraine. And specifically, I'm going to ask Luke to talk about the weaponization of Orthodox Christianity. Could you imagine for a moment your faith being weaponized? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. The wise men will bow down before the throne. And at his feet, they'll cast their golden crowns. When the man comes around. We're talking with uh, Luke Moon this morning. You know him from the Philos Project and Providence Magazine. You can find him at philosproject.org. We're going to read today from a couple of articles posted at providencemag.com. All the links will be in today's show notes. Good morning, Luke. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. I am well. I am well. I would like for you to help us understand um, what the Kremlin uh, in Russia is doing to weaponize Orthodox Christianity. And I think that as soon as we say that, I have to remind everybody that when we're talking about Eastern Orthodoxy, when we're talking about Orthodox Christianity, we're talking about the product of a schism that happened in 1054 between what we would now consider Eastern and Western versions of Christianity, and Eastern Orthodoxy predates Protestantism by 500 years. So we're talking about um, practices and forms of Christianity that are very, very, very old. Um, Tell us how the Kremlin or Russian Orthodoxy, the Russian Orthodox Church, is really being, um, is really viewing Christians who are Eastern Orthodox, but who are in Ukraine as, as of not only different faith, but as like a dangerous risk. I mean, like as heretics. Yeah. Right. So, so uh, the Orthodox Church, as you said, is you know comes from that split between uh, the Roman, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Orthodox Church, uh, really over like the leadership of the Pope. Right. So it it uh, you know as it is now expressed, there's a Russian Orthodox Church, there's a Greek Orthodox Church, there's a Armenian Orthodox Church, that kind of thing. And one of the uh, issues here is that in 2018, there was a split between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Uh, And actually, I'm not quite sure why we were so involved, but the U.S. uh, government uh, helped broker that schism. Uh, And then there, but there still remained Orthodox Ukrainian Orthodox who were were affiliated with the Moscow Patriarchate, which is basically the head of the Russian mm-hmm. Orthodox Church. Hopefully, I'm not too confusing here. But really, the the issue is there's there's a couple issues. One is that the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill, is very much a supporter of Putin and a supporter of this war. Uh, he has uh, called it a holy war. He has said the people who die on the battlefield are martyrs and that, uh, you know, if they die in battle, they will go straight to heaven. Uh, and so, you know, also n- not to be uh, to, to, to leave religion off the table, 
Zelensky, who's obviously the leader of the Ukrainian government, has banned the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that has been affiliated with the Moscow Patriarchate. Basically, those people still within the Orthodox Ukraine Orthodox Church that see that we're not fans of the schism and want to see it, you know, the their affiliation still be with Russia. Does that all make sense? Yes. I mean, it it does make sense to me. And I think that um, when we think about how serious we are in the United States when we view the denomination of which we are a part as reaching a point of apostasy um, and we, you know, we say we, we, we cannot we can no longer be in this version of the church and we must divide ourselves and da, da, da. that does help us approximate what's going on um, halfway around the world. Um, but what we don't have is the like weaponization of it by one government over and against the people in another country. Talk about the weaponization component of this. Right. So, so, you know, like I said, I think the, the issue is that, um, and we, we brought this up before is that, you know, you have a situation in which, uh, you know, Putin is using the language of the Russian Orthodox church where we, this is a holy war. Uh, it's a battle against Satan, uh, against Nazis. It's, you know, picking up those kind of, uh, very, uh, I don't know, uh, deep-seated, uh, you know, moral reasons. I mean, this is this is not unusual, though, Carmen. If if you remember, I mean, back in the in the Gulf War, you know, Saddam Hussein was no, you know, faithful Muslim, and suddenly, mm-hmm. you know, when he was up against the U.S., you know, he, you know, he's he's the champion of Islam, right? And it is it is a I mean, it's it's not new to use religion as a motivator uh, to mobilize your people. Um, and, you know, it's it's also not clear to me the degree to which, you know, like I, you know, I, I don't want to obviously be on the side of Putin here in any way, but I also. I'm not sure, like leading up to, you know, I didn't know I didn't follow Ukrainian politics but my sense was that the, their politics leading up before the war was it was a pretty progressive country in, in like European standards progressive. Right. And so you, it's not unsurprising as you have this kind of uh, <clears throat> global conflict between kind of the right and the left and how uh, politics and religion are, are increasingly fused together. You know, it's not surprising to me that you have some of the other uh, issues that begin to arise. That my, you know, within the last several months, uh, Putin has banned a bunch of LGBT type stuff. Um, you know, there was, I mean, there's been, I don't know, one would call it the weaponization of of religion in the recent Brazilian election, right? In which, you know, pretty. Pretty much, you know, the the Protestant evangelicals were pretty much behind Bolsonaro and the other, you know, the non-religious were not. Right. And so Uh I think one of the things that we're seeing here is not just the weaponization of religion in this conflict, but the weaponization 
of religion in all conflicts. Uh, and, you know, we're just getting started. I mean, I honestly, Carmen, I think we're, you know, there, we had a, we had a moment maybe post world war two where, where, you know, there was some, uh, or maybe it was after the fall of the Soviet union where there was, you know, pretty much everybody was kind of on the same page for a while, but we're going back to our old roots and religion is, is such an important motivator for people, myself included, that, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's, it's a useful tool uh, to mobilize people in a particular direction. I want to talk with you about what is um, happening in the Middle East as well. So when we come back, I'm going to ask Luke to talk with us about a number of U.S. senators who are going to be visiting countries in the Middle East in relationship to the Abraham Accords. Remember the Abraham Accords, right? Um, An effort to normalize relations between Israel and some of her neighbors. Um, And yes, we will also um, remind ourselves what is happening in relationship to um, the Taliban, um, what's happening in Iran, on and on and on. We have a lot of things to cover. We're looking around the world, what in the world is going on in the world Luke Moon is here with us, and we'll be right back. Listen to Faith Radio live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app at your app store today. Continuing our conversation with Luke Moon, you can find him at philosproject.org. Um, Luke, uh, talk with us about, remind us what the Abraham Accords are and um, and then talk with us about what is happening as some U.S. senators are going to make a visit there. Sure. Uh, the Abraham Accords were the uh, normalization agreements between uh, Arab countries, particularly uh, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco, uh, with Israel. Uh, this was, you know, just before the Trump administration came to an end, uh, and the senators are joining what is called the Negev Forum. Uh, the Negev is, you know, the desert area in, in the southern part of, of Israel. Uh, and there's a regular ongoing kind of uh, gathering of leaders uh, from those countries of the Abraham Accords, but also countries that have signed its neighbors that have signed peace deals with Israel, particularly Jordan and Egypt. Uh, and it's, it's just a it's an ongoing, there's just a lot of, of uh, financial arrangements that, that are being made, uh, some big infrastructure projects that are being made. I mean, you know, it's a, the Middle East is obviously a dry region and, you know, it's one of it, there's, you know, there, the Israel gives water, drinking water uh, to Jordan uh, through its desalination plant. Uh, there's also a you know a big project called Red to Dead, which is to pipe reds water from the Red Sea into the Dead Sea because uh, yeah. the Dead Sea is evaporating. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, a particularly mineral mining that takes place in the Dead Sea that will that by both the Jordanians and Israel uh, that would come to an end if the Dead Sea got too low. And so it's, you know, it's that kind of thing that takes place. Um, it, but it's, it's super important that they're, they're obviously the senators are going as a, a show of support. Uh, the Biden administration has, in, you know, at the beginning of the Biden administration, they, they refused to call it the Abraham Accords, but 
they have since uh, changed and now like everybody else calls it the Abraham Accords. You have a lot of um, relationships globally, particularly in the Middle East. I was reading this morning that uh, there are now some NGOs resuming their work in Afghanistan um, after the Taliban has issued assurances that Afghan women can continue to work in the health sector um, as long as they're working with other women or with children. Um, And so CARE, Save the Children, and International Rescue Committee, um, all of which suspended their operations in late December because the government there, um, you know, banned women from aid work. Uh, Those three organizations have resumed their aid work in Afghanistan. Um, Luke, when you think about the influence that non-governmental organizations have in terms of meeting the material needs of people in places like Afghanistan, um, help help us understand, because you've been there and most of us have not. When you're thinking about any portion of a war-torn country, how, how essential is the presence and, and the partnership of non-governmental organizations? Well, I'll give you one example. So if you took out just the Catholic Church's role in healthcare around the world, not just to start mm-hmm. bigger than Afghanistan, just around the world, like it's about 50%. 50% mm. of healthcare around the world is under either direct or indirect control of the Catholic church. That's insane. I mean, you're talking mm-hmm. like places in, in, in Africa where, you know, it's one doctor for a hundred thousand people. And, and that, that get that, you know, doctor is running a clinic uh, funded by the Catholic church. I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing that happens around the world. Afghanistan is no different. I mean, you have, you have a, you know, uh, an environment that is where probably majority of healthcare, if not probably, you know, 90% of that, all the healthcare in the country is handled through NGOs of some kind. Uh, and if you cut off uh, women from being able to work in those, uh, in that area, in that field, um, it, it comes to an end. And I think that's what the, the Taliban realized. Um and why they had to uh, recant. The problem is that they are just, you know, they're aggressively anti-women. Uh, and it just, it's not going to, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it, perhaps once they, you know, the, the, the heat comes off uh, from the international community, they'll go back to their old ways. But, you mm. know, I, I think, you know, this was, this was one of the things that, you know, the Taliban said, no, no, we'll be good. We don't we'll allow, you know, women to go to girls to go to school and we'll do all this when we're making a deal to pull out. And, you know, it didn't take long for them to go back to their old ways. Um, and it, it is unfortunate that, you know, the Taliban, uh, you know, it, like, I don't know, it, it's a hard thing where the, you know, you want the people of Afghanistan who knew, you know, basically, you know, a lot of civil rights for the, you know, for 20 years. And then Afghan, and then in a matter of days, uh, all that came to an end, you know, obviously the promises of the Taliban, but it came to an end. And, um, you know, one would wish and hope that the, that the people would rise up, but, you know, it's, it takes a lot to mobilize people to get them to, get frustrated to the point where they're willing to risk their lives 
uh, for for freedom. And mm. uh, unfortunately, it seems the Taliban are not there yet. The Iranians, on the other hand, are. They're ready. Oh, well, say more about that. <laughs> what do you mean the Iranians are ready? Well, the, I mean, the, 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 I mean, the protests are still going on, mm, even as yes. even as they there's been a series in the last couple of weeks of of, you know, high profile executions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't it hasn't uh, deterred protesters from uh, keeping on the pressure. And, you know, the Iran, you know, was in a was in a state recently where they could. You know, they were negotiating with the United States over a, a new a new Iran deal and the Europeans and that kind of thing. And this this the the protest just you know boggled that whole thing up. And uh, you know, I think one of the things we had talked about is you know the the rise of the natural leader, somebody from the insides, mm-hmm. going to ultimately you know uh, mobilize enough uh, and and break the will of the Ayatollah. Um, so it, you know, they're, they're in different places, Afghanistan and, and Iran in terms of where they are in their tolerance towards, um, you know, towards, towards demand for freedom and, and fed up with, uh, the regime. So, so we're just, uh, four months following the death of Masha Amini, uh, women, life, freedom are some of the call signs of the Iranian protests. Protests do consider, uh, do, uh, continue in Iran. Um, and, and yet the, uh, yeah, the rule is, um, uh, is continuing and extrajudicial killings, um, continue as well. It's just, uh, it's, it's a quite a fraught situation. Um, Luke, as always, thank you so much, um, for bringing us the news of the day, doing so in a way that we can, um, hopefully have a better handle on it than we did before, but then also, Um, have some faithful talking points in our conversations with others. We appreciate it. My pleasure. That's Luke Moon. You can find him at the Philos Project, philosproject.org. You can find all the links for the conversations we had today in today's show notes for Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, we're going to have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We're going to talk a little bit about the politics of walking. Where did you walk yesterday? Have you taken a walk lately? I want you to think about where you walked, who you walked with, where you walked from or to, how you walked, what you looked at or avoid looking at when you walked. The politics of walking. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.